This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. What's up, y'all? want to welcome you back to the Hunt Stand Podcast. Season 2, and this is your host, Will Cooper. The Hunt Stand Podcast is your weekly source for insightful conversations with veteran hunters, dedicated outdoor enthusiasts, and top industry personnel. I'm going to have guests on here who are true experts in their field, diving into the captivating world of our industry and the great outdoors. With each episode, you, the listener, will receive invaluable knowledge, tips, and guidance on how to enhance your skills in the wild and in life. Tune in to be entertained, informed, and driven to reach new heights. The Hunt Stand Podcast is brought to you by Yamaha and its full line of class-defining, adventure-seeking motorcycles, ATVs, and side-by-side vehicles. The Hunt Stand Podcast is also brought to you by Springfield Armory and their lineup of Model 2020 Waypoint Rifles. And finally, the Hunt Stand Podcast is brought to you by Stealth Cam. It's never been easier to go wireless with the Command Pro app. Capture high-quality photos and videos of all the action wherever you hunt with Stealth Cam's advanced cameras and data plans tailored to your needs. So make sure you check out their website today, StealthCam.com. Hunt Stand Podcast Season 2. Buckle up. It's going to be a good ride. Let's go. What's going on, everybody? It's your host, Will, coming back for a new episode of the Hunt Stand Podcast. Before we get to today's episode, I want to let you all in on a little something that we're doing here on Tuesday, March 21st at 7 p.m. Central Time in the evening. And what we're going to be doing is hosting our very first hunt class. And specifically, we're going to be talking turkey. This is going to be a master class to help you win the gobbler game. So what we're going to be doing on this is it's going to be a live stream event. So you want to make sure that you get registered to this event. I'm going to have the link down in the description below, or you can head to huntstand.com and you'll see where you can sign up. And you're going to want to do this quick because this does have limited seats. And so it will run out fast. But what we're going to be doing on here is we're going to have expert insight on e-scouting, play-by-play, daily turkey hunting strategies. And then there will also be a Q&A session to help answer your questions about hunting the king of spring. Now, who's going to be hosting this? 
very own Josh Dowkey is going to be hosting this in conjunction with Paul Butsky. And between the two, they have quite the resume. Josh has been hunting turkeys for over 20 years. He's racked up multiple Grand Slams, World Slam, and now he's currently working towards a U.S. Super Slam. Spends a lot of time out in the woods each spring, over 50 days. So we've got Josh on there and then with Paul. Now, those of y'all that don't know Paul, Paul has quite the resume as well. His experience in the turkey woods spans more than 50 years and he's taken home the most prestigious awards as a turkey calling champion. He's a two-time winner of the Levi Garrett All-American Open, Masters Champion, six-time U.S. Open Champion, three-time NWTF Grand National Champion. So he's done it. He is the world calling champion when it comes to Turkey and he can talk sexy to him. He can talk the sexiest to him. I've spent time with this man in camp before years ago and I have seen him work gobblers, work birds. And y'all are gonna wanna know what these two have to say when it comes to turkey hunting. So you don't wanna miss out on that. Head to the link down in the description below, huntstand.com. Make sure you get registered before we run out of space. Tuesday, March 21st at 7 p.m. Central. So first hunt class, don't miss out on y'all. For today's episode, we are going to be talking to Mr. Bill Winky. Now, for those of y'all that don't know Bill, he's an accomplished outdoorsman and hunting expert who has spent more than 30 years pursuing his passion for hunting in the outdoors. He's best known for his role as the founder and host of Midwest Whitetail. And so throughout his career, Bill has served as a leading authority on deer hunting and habitat management. So we're going to get him on here to talk about shed hunting and not necessarily just how to find sheds or tips and techniques to find sheds. He's going to share a little insight on that, but we're going to talk more on the purpose and implications of shed hunting. You know, what's the purpose behind shed hunting? Why do we do it other than just having fun? So I'm not going to go into that too much because we're going to talk to Bill about that. We're going to get his story. And again, y'all, we just want to thank y'all for tuning in the Stand podcast. You got lots of different options out there. So thank you for listening support has been awesome and if you haven't yet make sure you download the hunt stand app we've got the free version we've got pro and the new this past fall we got pro whitetail so if you want to unlock all the features of hunt stand upgrade today so i'm gonna quit rambling and here's our man bill winky all right well bill first and foremost welcome to your first time on the hunt stand podcast yeah my pleasure thank you thanks for having me yeah man absolutely i'm glad we're able to you know find some time to do this. And uh, specifically, we're going to talk about shed hunting here in a little bit. But what I like to do, I know a lot of people know you already, but for those that may not, kind of tell us a little bit about yourself. It's uh, this little thing I call 30 foot tree stand view of who you are, man. So tell us about yourself. <laughs> the uh, It goes back quite a ways. I started writing for uh, hunting magazines in 1990. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I did that exclusively along with photography. I did a lot of photography for the hunting industry. And then in 2008, I started a digital video series called Midwest Whitetail. And I ran that through 2017. And then I sold it and kind of hung on for a little while. And then I took a couple of years away just to catch my breath and, you know, get recharged. And uh, last summer, I started a new series, a YouTube series on the Bill Winky YouTube channel called mm -hmm. Bowling Whitetails. And then another one uh, that we just recently launched called Dream Farm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Dream Farm really focuses on uh, land, you know, buying, selling, purchasing, or uh, fixing up yeah. uh, the land management. We won't do a ton on the buying and selling. Mm -hmm. We're going to spend most of the effort on, you know, how to improve land that you own. But uh, 
we do have some elements of that too, because dream farm, you know, for a lot of people, that means putting it together. So that's, that's, uh, like I said, it's on the Bill Winkie YouTube channel. So you can find pretty much everything that has to do with me, uh, right there for now. And I still write a little bit, not, not as much as I did way back in the day, but just a little bit here and there. Where, how long ago did you start hunting? How long has that been a thing <laughs> for you? Is that, you know, six, seven, eight years old or, or older? Yeah. Than I mean, I started, I started hunting, uh, as, as early as I could, you know, sneak into the woods with a BB gun. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of hunting that, that I started with. And then, uh, probably I think I had my first 410 at, I'm going to say maybe age 11. Okay. And then I had a 20 gauge, an old model 12, 20 gauge the next year, like maybe age 12. And then I'd say maybe it was age 13, roughly that I got my first 12 gauge. So I just mm -hmm. kept kind of moving up, but the, uh, uh, it was in my blood right away. You know, some people, they come to it, you know, and then they're like, I don't know if I like this or not. It's like, man, I loved it. You know, from the very second I started, I don't know why. I mean, different people say that, you know, this is just in my blood, but, uh, right from the start, I was in love with it and I loved fishing too, but for some reason, hunting was just, just something else, you know, above fishing even for me. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny. Uh, you know, we've all got similar stories, I would say in the hunting industry for a lot of us that work in the hunting industry, that's kind of a thing I've seen getting to do a lot of these podcasts is it seems like that's the start or some people even got to it later in life and now they have that career. So when did you first pick up a bow? I think I was, I know I didn't have a driver's license yet. Uh, you're going to laugh at what inspired bow hunting because <laughs> I didn't know any bow hunters mm -hmm. and, uh, but I loved reading the Edgar Rice Burroughs Tarzan books. Okay. You know, and Tarzan killed a bunch of stuff with a bow. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, if Tarzan can do it, then surely my 14 <laughs> year old mind equated that I could do it too. So I saved up whatever money I could and, and ended up buying a bear whitetail hunter. Do you remember that bow? I mean, that might be way before your time, but no, the, that was wheel, one of the, the old school wheels, right? Okay. Yeah. 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 So that was, it was one of the first truly uh mass appeal compound bows and so i bought that when i was 14 and i owned it for a few years never killed anything with it mm -hmm. um, then eventually i stepped up to a uh browning safari a big wood handled bow you're kidding me the grip the was like one you had to use two hands to hold the grip <laughs> it was <laughs> monstrous dude they were giant the the riser was you know solid wood so the you know, the grip was huge, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, so that was bow number two. And I still got, I don't have the whitetail hunter anymore. I sold that in order to buy the browning bow, but I've still got that browning bow. Uh, but yeah, it's funny. You know, we look back now at the stuff that we used. I had a, on that uh, whitetail hunter, I had a bare weather wrist and there's like adhesive back, little rubber finger, and just stick it on the side of the riser. Well, yeah. about every four or five shots, mine would fall off into the grass. I'd reach down and pick <laughs> it up and stick it back on the riser again and then go back to shooting. And uh, no uh, no sights, you know, shooting fingers, of course. And I'm trying to think what year that would have been. Probably, let's see, 76, 77, mm -hmm. somewhere in there. So pretty early 
in the popularization of compound bows and the accessories weren't much. Yeah. And I think it was, uh, like I said, a little rubber self-adhesive back rest and uh, shooting Easton 1819 or 1918, you know, the arrows weighed almost as much as the bow, uh, you know, just logs. So it was uh, obviously a way different than, than our experience today. And I didn't know anybody that bow hunted. And I, even when I went off to college, I only knew one person, like personally knew only one person who had ever killed a deer with a bow. And that would have been uh, 82. So even as recently as 1982 in Iowa, um, there just wasn't common at all. No. So it, the, the learning curve was, was, you'd say it was steep, but that would assume that you're learning something. So I'm going to say it was flat. <laughs> Because we weren't learning anything, <laughs> we just went, just we went deer hunting and, and just and just failed. Like every everything, every kind of way you can think of failing, we failed. Never succeeded. So there wasn't much of a learning curve. It was just flat failure. Uh, but it it again, it was just in my blood. Something about the arrow in the air. You know, and you've heard uh, people like even Ted Nugent has said, you know, the mysterious flight of the arrow. Yes, uh, just something about the arrow that uh, really drew me and I shot some deer with the gun over the years, but it always came back to bow hunting for me. Mm -hmm. Same here. Same here. Well, no, man, the thing you're known for, of course, is deer and deer hunting. And so what I want to talk to you about today is shed hunting and not specifically, you know, obviously we like to do it for fun. It's a great way to get kids and family in the outdoors or do it with friends and buddies. But I also want to talk about the, the implications of shed hunting and more or less what's the purpose behind it rather than just having fun. But to kind of get us started, you know, you, you've got your own farm kind of run us through, you know, some different ways that you like to attack shed hunting as soon as that first snow melt starts to happen. I had a really, really good shed hunting mentor. If you want to call it that mm -hmm. a guy named Lee Murphy, anybody that knows Lee, um, they'll start chuckling right now. I mean, Lee had some kind of a disability pension from his uh, whatever he had been doing prior or something with the railroad. Mm -hmm. So he didn't work. So he would literally spend two months a year, you know, plus just shed hunting every day. Wow. So Lee, Lee knew everything about shed hunting and uh, he made it really simple. He said, well, where are the deer right now? You know, I'd say, well, they're in like these three, three locations. He said, well, that's where you're going to find the answers. <laughs> so I was like, well, it pretty much simplified. It was like, well, they're bedding, they're bedding up here and they're feeding over here and they're using these trails in between. And he said, well, go to those places. He said, don't, you know, you don't need to walk every corner of your farm, you know, just hoping to trip over an antler somewhere. Focus on the places where you know the deer are living now. And one of the things he cued on was uh, fresh droppings. He said, you can look at sign and and be um distracted maybe by old sign but his his whole thing was you show me fresh droppings and i'll, I'll find you some shed antlers uh, so that was that was kind of his you know his uh mentoring and you know for sure that's worked you know I, I wouldn't call myself a great shed hunter but that's what i fall back on uh, i'm just too impatient you know i i do want to wander you know every last corner of the farm you know i'm I'm looking up in the trees trying to figure out, you know, would this be a good spot for a tree stand? And I might step on it, 
on Nantler. <laughs> you know, that, that might be how I find it. Uh, but the guys who are really good at it, they do what, you know, what Lee was saying is, is they basically, they figure out where the deer are at in say late January through, you know, mid March. And that's where they spend their time. <clears throat> now is shed hunting something, you know, you, you talked a minute ago, you're not the greatest at it, but is it, one of those things that you do, like you see some people across the nation that they might have like shed hunting parties or, you know, they're going out and doing it every year. Um, obviously there's purpose behind, but is that something that you do it all out on your farms as you get, get the family, friends, coworkers out there and y'all just go after it? Yeah. I had a, on the farm that I sold, that farm had a lot of deer on it mm-hmm. in its prime and a lot of bucks. I mean, it was kind of a, a you know, a dream farm, so to speak, you know, we're talking about that topic, but uh, I didn't want the antlers just to go to waste. So I had a, a group of neighbors and uh, they would walk it and they would make big parties out of it. They'd have their family. So it wasn't my family that was focused on it mm-hmm. or me, you know, I might be in my office working and they'd be out walking my farm. But uh, I remember the best year they found 176 antlers and uh, I think they found three of them that were over 80 inches. might've been even more than that. Wow. Uh, one, one that was over 90 inches, clean five point side, uh, just some giants, you know, that made you wish that you were a shed hunter, you know, because yeah. finding stuff like that's like finding gold. But oh, yeah. uh, I just didn't have, I didn't have the patience for it. Mm-hmm. I was so busy, you know, for a lot of that time. I mean, somebody had to pay for that farm, you know, <laughs> it was, yeah. that was the problem. You know, it's, it's one thing to say, oh, I want the stream farm, but then you also got to figure out how to pay for it. So mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time working when I would have liked to have been out there playing. Uh, but that, that was kind of uh, the farm in its heyday. And, and I would always keep the standing rule that, you know, they had to show me every antler, you know, tell me where they found, you know, obviously whichever ones I was interested in, if I wanted to keep one or however many I could, and uh, I don't think I ever kept any uh, during all that time. I think I let them keep the antlers, but sometimes I'd hold on to them for a few days or a few weeks or whatever, you know, and next time I saw them, I'd, I'd give them the antlers back. No. Um, for me, some people just love shed, sheds, you know, like the antlers. Yeah. And I love hunting the deer. So, you know, for me, once the deer is dead, he's a whole lot less interesting to me. So the antlers are only like that carrot yeah it gets me gets me into the chase Mm -hmm. Uh, and once the chase is over you know i'm still proud of the deer that i've killed you know but you know a lot of it's just being in the right places you know hunting hunting areas with great genetics great age structure uh it's not really a measurement of of how good you are as a deer hunter Uh, it's just it's fun though i mean i'm not going to say that killing a deer with big antlers isn't fun but you hate to take that too seriously so I try not to put too much emphasis on the antlers, I guess is my point. Yeah. Um, I try not to put too much emphasis on the sheds either, even though they were cool. To me, the chase, mm-hmm. the pursuit, uh, that's that's what I was really addicted to. So you say <clears throat> you're not worried about the antler, but you're more you're more concerned about the story that it tells you where you find it though, right? That's right. There's a whole purpose yeah. behind that. So kind of... Tell us about that purpose. I'm going to tell you a shed hunting story first because I have been a serious shed hunter once in my life. And, <laughs> okay. Uh, there was a, a really big deer living on the farm 
anybody that followed Midwest Whitetail would remember, I'm sure, uh, some of these stories. But uh, he was a big giant, typical mm-hmm. five by six. Uh, I didn't know exactly what he'd score, but I figured he was over 200 inches. Gosh. And would have been 2011. Uh, that winter after the 2011 hunting season, I wanted those antlers. So I kept running trail camera over a little small pile of corn mm-hmm. in that buck's core area. And I would check it every day. I'd go in there at noon, pull the card, you know, and almost every day he was on there, you know, with both sides. And then finally one day came and I'm like, I recognize that face, you know, cause he had, you know, coloration on his nose. Real distinct. I recognized there's no antlers on his head. So right away I got a hold of like three or four people and said, we're going in, you know, we're going to find those antlers right now. You know, we're not going to take any chances that, you know, somehow, you know, a coyote grabs them and runs off or, you know, squirrels might start chewing on them or heaven forbid, you know, somebody might trespass and grab them. But I didn't really have issues with that, you know, because we were in there so actively, you know, my, my friends were, you know, hunting the place so aggressively, but I just didn't want the antlers to get away. And, uh, we went in there within an hour and a half. We had them both and they were both within probably 150 to 200 yards of the camera Man. in separate directions though, like opposite directions from the camera, you know, one this way and one that way. Yep. But also uh, it was right in that deer's core area. I mean, where I found one of them was where I think he bedded most of the time. Mm-hmm. And then the other one was found out in an open field where he fed most of the time. So you know, that was also where I'd, excuse me, had all my fall encounters with the deer, you know, not necessarily where he spent the summer. So that's kind of where we're coming back around to this whole thing about, you know, what you can learn from shed antlers. But that's where I had all my fall encounters. And, uh, you know, it, it is, it's where I killed him. I killed him probably 50 yards from where that shed was laying in the open uh, field. Amazing. So, you know, you start, you know, putting all the pieces of the puzzle together when you're trying to pattern a buck and uh the shed antlers are just one of those pieces you know trail cameras tell us so much mm-hmm. you know we don't hardly have to uh to really guess you know too much beyond that but where the deer sheds usually is where he spent the fall uh, not always sometimes they'll move for food but it's it's most times in my experience you know somewhere in that in that buck's fall range and that means that's probably where you're going to find him next fall because they have kind of a summer range and a fall range. And most people will get, not most, some people will get confused. They'll see that buck really active in, in early August out on the soybeans and they're super excited about it. And then they never see him again, you know, from mid September on. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's because that was just that buck's summer range. And uh, he spent his fall someplace else. And again, the trail cameras tell us all that stuff, but you know, should you find a set of sheds somewhere, uh, I would be really serious about trying to figure out if he's back there again the next fall. That's where I'd start. Um, if you didn't have a history with that deer, I'd say, you know, this is where that deer lives. What would you say the percentage is that when you find those sheds, uh, that that deer is there again next year if he if he made it to that point? I bet it's more than two thirds likely that you'll find him in that that basic area. Um, and, and the reason I say that is I've got numbers uh, from Mark Drury. You know, Mark is really a, a, a student of like everything that has to do with like quantitative behavior. Mm-hmm. He's very analytical in his hunting and people, they, they don't realize 
how much that guy knows, but he came up with that number and I can't argue with it. He said that roughly a third of the bucks will change fall ranges from year to year. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know that I can, you know, dispute that. So that's why I'm not trying to. So let's <laughs> just say that his number is right. But, you know, maybe it's less than that. Yeah. You know, maybe 20%, you know, change their fall range from one year to the next. But the likelihood is well above 50% that where you found a buck one fall is where you're going to find him again the next fall if he's still alive. Right. You know, and we're talking about, you know, a lot of times that's going to tell you where that that deer lived at that time. Uh, you know, the other part is of shed hunting. A lot of guys use it for proof of inventory to show them what was there, what's there, what's still there. Um, and what they can mm -hmm. hopefully be looking forward to on the next year. So, I mean, is that something that you do as well that, you know, you're looking for that proof to make sure that they made it if you haven't seen them on camera in a while? Yeah, I think, I think that would be a really good reason. Um, and, and, not everybody runs camera after the deer season, mm -hmm. you know, it just depends. Some people are, you know, year round, you know, camera fanatics. But uh, for me, I stopped running my camera about the 15th or 20th of October. And I don't put it back out again until September. Really? So, yeah. So it's more relevant for me probably than some people to see those antlers. But I also hunt a lot of places where, you know, it'd be more likely natural causes that get the bucks that I'm after. I'm not saying that other hunters wouldn't, but usually I would hear, you know, like yeah. I'll talk to the neighbors and, and you know, if, if nobody says so-and-so down the street got a giant, you know, or got a, you know, whatever the deer happened to be, you know, a 10 pointer with a drop time, et cetera, you know, something that seemed like the buck maybe that you were hunting. I just assume that they're going to be there. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and usually they are. <laughs> yeah. It's just deer. They don't live forever though. Even no. with no hunting pressure, you know, and everybody thinks, oh man, if there weren't any hunters, you know, I'd have, you know, seven, eight year old bucks. Not um, necessarily. You won't. No, you'll have, you know, five and six year old bucks and maybe the odd seven year old and maybe mm -hmm. one eight year old every once in a while, but they just don't live forever. Yeah. So you can lose them to a mortality, even if none of the neighbors in your area says that they, they shot the deer. Uh, for that reason, it's really good. I mean, it is nice to know that, uh, when you go into the next season, you're not going to be spinning your wheels trying to hunt a ghost. You know, it's hard enough to kill when they're alive. They're way harder to kill when they're already dead. Oh yeah. That makes it way harder, <laughs> way harder. <laughs> if somebody can pull that off, I'd like to know. But, uh, yeah. uh I want to ask you a question because I heard you say something that you, you pretty much stopped running cameras after what was it? October 15th. Yeah. 15th to 20th, somewhere in there. Now, why, yeah. why is that? Well, I mean, everybody's got their own philosophical approach to deer hunting. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, th I think that there has to be a spectrum. There's one legal extreme and then there's the, the you know, hunt with a sharpened stick and, yeah. you know, a bow that you made out of, you know, a, a piece of twine and a tree branch. Um, you know, so you can go that whole spectrum in between. So you're always trying to find where in that spectrum that you gain the most satisfaction from deer hunting. You know, it's not necessarily mm -hmm. just killing deer. You know, if, I, if all I wanted to do is just kill the biggest deer on the farm every year, uh, there's ways to do that, you know, and, and have a really high chance of doing it. I mean, the cameras are good enough now, but 
we can know everything we need to know. We can run cell cameras. We can know where that buck was this morning. Yeah. I might even know where he is right now, you know, and, but for me, there was a little bit of a line there. And, you know, like I said, everybody draws their, their line in that spectrum. Um, I would rather be surprised when the buck I'm after shows up than disappointed when he doesn't. Um, so that's kind of the way that, you know, if that makes any sense, that's the direction that my deer hunting has evolved into. I still want it to be an adrenaline rush and not just like an expectation. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I'm going to expect to kill this deer because I've got, you know, so much information about this deer that I kind of know where he is all the time. If I don't get him, I'm going to be disappointed. I still want it to feel like I, I, there's still an element of the unknown. Um, I want when he shows up to be like, oh, there he is. You know, not like, well, finally, it's about time you showed up. You know, it's, I just don't want it to be that that predictable and it can be you know it sounds bad but if you run enough cameras and and, uh you do it right uh you can make this they got to be there you know they got the deer have to be there that's the biggest challenge like i always said you know the hardest part about killing a six-year-old buck is having a six-year-old buck on your hunting gear Mm -hmm. you know once he's there he's not that much harder to kill than they might even be easier to kill than some of the other bucks because of the way that they their behavior excuse me their behavior changes as they age uh I've seen them become very, very easy to kill once they get past a certain age. So that's not it. You know, it's, it's, uh, you want it to be that excitement of, of having that deer show up and then your jaw drops and then your, you know, your pulse goes up and you're like, there he is rather than, you know, like I said. Um, but that's just me and, and I surely don't push that on anybody else. If it's yeah. legal, you know, I'm, I'm all for however you want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just, how I like to do, man. It's, it's, I can learn it. all. All I need to know, all I want to know, is which part of my hunting area he's living in, and I know that by the fifteenth or twentieth of October. I don't want to know more than that. Yeah, you know, the rest of it, I want to try to figure out the old way. You know, like put the time in, look for tracks, look for rubs, look for scrapes. You know, where's a good bottleneck? You know, I don't want to have a camera behind every bush so that I know exactly where he's at. You know, I want it to be somewhat of an unknown yet. Man, it's funny you're talking about this because I found this is the first time I've run cameras the whole year because I used to I used to do it how you did that. Typically, you know, in Texas, I'd I'd run it, you know, starting in August to try and get an inventory to find out what's on the property. And then usually about that October time, right before the opener of rifle here, which is November 7th, I'd pull it because I'd run it through bow season because a lot of times the place we have would have roamers and, you know, just wanted to see what's coming through. So I kept it up during bow season. But as soon as that November 7th, 8th time hit, I pulled that camera because a lot of times I haven't killed by then. And like you, I wanted it to be a surprise. And hearing you talk about it finally made me realize that I was thinking like that, that I was constantly checking deer on the cell cams. Like I knew where they were when they were coming through and everything. And when I'd go out and sit and I wouldn't see it, I had these unrealistic expectations. And like you said, when the deer finally came, it's like, Oh, finally, you know, wasn't that surprise anymore. So it's got me thinking like, man, I want to get back to that mindset of really using it for that inventory purpose, finding out when they're on the place, know what time of year they're there. And then, like you said, kind of do it the old school way from there. Well, and I think you could still be very successful that way. 
Yeah. Um, it just maybe takes a little bit longer, but I feel like for me at least, and again, I'm not going to speak for anyone else, mm-hmm. what they're doing is legal, you know, more power to you. Right. But it just makes the hunt more satisfying for me. Yes. I, I only want to know that I'm spending my time in an area that has a shooter. Yes. Because maybe that's the most frustrating part is you've only got so many days in a season, mm-hmm. whether you're hunting, you know, a week of vacation or whether you're hunting, you know, 30 straight days all through the rut, you still only have a finite amount of time. Yeah. And you don't want to invest that time in a place where they're, they're, they're low likelihood of, of there being any kind of a buck there that you would shoot. Right. That's all I need to know. I just need to know that there's one here that I'd be happy to shoot. Exactly. Um, I don't need to know exactly where he's at. <clears throat> but just know he's in the vicinity. Yeah. Cause then you know you're hunting him. Mm-hmm. And that's the fun part. You're going to, you know, if you think about the chase, you know, we talked about that. As it brings out the best in you, you know, because then you do all the stuff that you're supposed to do. You know, like you're quiet, you know, you're doing, you know, sneaking in by the best route. You're glassing ahead with your binoculars to make sure you're not going to bump something, you know, as you head towards your tree stand, et cetera. You feel like you're so engaged, you know, like you're really connected to this hunt. Well, um, to me, that's the fun part. And, and all I have to know is that there's a buck here that I would like to shoot that you'll, you know, you put a lot more of that kind of energy into it rather than just getting sloppy and, you know, you just don't know. I mean, I used to get frustrated before the camera days, you know, you'd hunt for maybe 20 days in my case and not see much, mm-hmm. you know, you start to get pretty dang sloppy, you know, because you don't even know if there was a shooter there to begin with, yeah. you know, let alone there still is. So, yeah, that's, I, th- I think that's the, the, a really a good healthy role for me um for the cameras i think a couple of people might agree with you as well especially with those like myself who ran it this past year and had that expectation like you talked about so you know we're talking about the bedding areas and finding out where these deer were uh, talk to talk to the listeners a little bit about you know you you find that shed and it's in an area that you know you want to hunt so what I'm getting at is when you find that shed, how are you looking at the area from either boots on the ground perspective or from a computer's perspective or, you know, in this case, a hunt stand at perspective, right? But how are you yeah. looking at that to approach the next fall? Well, the and again, this is more of an evolution of my own philosophy of, of deer hunting. Um, I feel like you have to be hunting spots where the deer don't know that you're hunting them. Okay. So that's rule number one is like, let's say I figure this deer spends a lot of his time in an 80 acre area. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I'm trying to figure out whether I'm pulling up the app and, and studying the, the aerial photos, the topo maps, you know, some of the other layers on there, some of the crop history, et cetera, et cetera. There's so much information there. And that's what people don't get about that hunt stand app is there's layer upon layer of, of information that you can pull. Yeah. You know, it's not just an aerial photo. Um, so I'm trying to learn as much as I can about that area with the, maybe not trying to figure out where he's going to be mm-hmm. necessarily, but how can I get in and out of the area where he lives without him knowing? Um, so that's really what, what the, the that's the, the real heart of the hunt. And to me, that's the chess match. That's the fun part. That's the game that I enjoy playing is how can I hunt a buck for a whole season without him knowing? Yeah. And uh, that's why it's fun to pick one deer too, you know, if you can, because it becomes a personal quest then. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and being able to put that puzzle together 
it starts with knowing roughly what area he lives in. The next step is almost the last step. And that is where can I hunt him without him knowing? Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously there's a lot to that. That that's where the whole uh, that's the whole, you know, the meat and potatoes of hunting whitetails is how do I hunt him without him knowing? I mean, we could write 50 books about that. Oh, absolutely. We could do that. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, you know, you, you find this shed and you're looking at this, this area, you're, you're learning it and you're trying to figure out how to hunt that deer without him knowing. Right. I mean, let's talk about that meat and potatoes a little bit, you know, like give the listeners kind of a, I guess you could say a 30,000 foot view of, of what that meat and potatoes looks like. You know, I think, you know, I were talking before the podcast that, you know, when you find that shed, you're kind of looking at different areas like the creeks and ditches and ridges and saddles where you found that shed and approaching it for the next year. I mean, how does your mind kind of begin to turn when you're looking at that? Well, and it's sort of the same. If you're uh, hunting sheds, mm -hmm. what you're really doing is postseason scouting. And that's why I'm such a bad shed hunter um, because I'm really scouting 90% yeah. and shed hunting 10%. The antlers are just an excuse to get me outside doing what I should be doing. Mm -hmm. And that's figuring out what are the entry and exit routes for me into this area. So I'm scouting backwards. It's kind of the, you know, the song that I sing a lot is, you know, scout backwards. You know, don't look for sign and figure out how to hunt it. Look for the bulletproof entry and exit routes and then look for the best spots along those. Because, you know, let's think about, let's take that 80 acre area yeah. and you've got a five-year-old buck on there that, that's in there quite a bit. Maybe he spends 40% of his time in that 80 acres. Uh, he's on his feet during the day one day. How many trees did he walk upwind of during the time, during daylight that he was on his feet? You know, 100, 700, you know, 1,500. So there's not one best spot to kill him. Um, you can kill him a lot of different places. You know, maybe there's some spots that the odds favor, you know, because maybe there's some funnels that he's more likely to go a certain way through them or, you know, whatever. But he has to be on his feet in daylight mm -hmm. for that to work. He's only going to be doing that if he's moving naturally, which means he can't know that you're hunting him. So I don't focus on, you know, where to sit as much as I focus on how to get in and out, because then if he's on his feet, you know, time is on your side. Uh, you know, an, another analogy, and, and uh, I started doing a lot of land consulting, you know, with, with people, and I'm always trying to maybe challenge their thinking about, you know, how do you hunt your farm? You know, another analogy I use a lot is, let's say you've got a little flat sandstone rock mm -hmm. and you want to make a hole in it. And, you know, you've, you've got a lot of options like, well, you know, the hammer would make the quickest hole, you know, but the likelihood of busting that rock up into 12 pieces without getting a nice clean hole is pretty high. And that's when you find the hottest sign and you go plunging into the middle of your 80 acre area, you're taking the hammer to the sandstone, you know, trying to make a hole in it. But what if you just took water and poured it, you know, real, you know, out of a cup and it just over time, it just erodes away, erodes away. And then, yeah. You know, granted, you know, it's not a hunting season, but let's just use that analogy. Pretty soon you've got a hole through it and you haven't broken that rock. Um, so that's kind of where I say that, you know, you're just trying to do it in a way that you're not breaking your hunting area and letting time 
be on your side, mm-hmm. you know, rather than you know trying to force things. The only time I think it makes any sense to force is when you're running out of time. You know, like yeah. you know that your your hunting vacation is almost over, or you know there's going to be a, a van load of people coming into the public hunting area this coming weekend. You know, maybe I should make my aggressive play now. Um, other than that, I'm always thinking in terms of um, how can I hunt this area without the deer knowing, mm-hmm. and then just letting time you know, work in my favor. I like it. I like it. You know, speaking on pressure, I think a lot of people probably, they look at shed hunting and through a couple of different windows. And some people are worried that if they go in looking for sheds, that they're going to bump those deer out and they're never going to be back. I mean, what's your experience or perspective on that? They'll come back. Um, the only the only risk you've got there is, uh, you know, I know I know guys that hunt them in in uh, like public parks and stuff. You know where mm-hmm. they don't have access on the private land around there. Yeah. So they're they're afraid they're going to bump the deer off and he's in the shed his antlers on the private land. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. where they can't go to get them. So that's more their concern. Is not necessarily they're going to impact you know for a fall you know, a hunting scenario, but mm-hmm. more from this purely from the standpoint of finding the sheds. So they're always trying to play that game of, you know, how long should I wait? You know, if I wait too long, somebody's going to beat me to them. If I don't wait long enough, I can run this deer off and he's in the shed someplace else. Um, I think I would be less concerned about impacting the huntability of that deer from no. shed hunting than I would be about any other reason for, for not doing it. Some people don't like doing it when it's super cold out and that's a, that's a good idea. Yeah. Because of the stress, yeah. stress. That's you know, true. You're already in trouble, or, or they could be in trouble, and now you're chasing them around, potentially chasing them around. Um, you know, so I know some people shy away from those times when it's really cold. Yeah, or they're you know the food is really on the low end or something like that. You can introduce stress. Uh, That's true. But I, I would never worry about the huntability. That people will argue with me on that, I'm sure, but it's silly. Um, I'm not calling them still. I'm saying the idea that something that you do in, in February is yes. going to change the behavior of a deer in October. Um, it's just not going to happen. Uh, yeah. And I, I'm right there with you because I mean, I've, I've had, I've been on some ranches here in Texas that March and April were hunting on that property for turkeys and landowners like, Oh, don't go back here to this area. And it's like, well, why is that? Well, that's the bedding area. That's where the deer always are. And if you go in there, it's going to screw up my hunting for the fall. I'm like, <laughs> is it really though? Is That's like really? six or seven months away. I know. In like, Texas, that might be eight or nine months away. Yeah, like that deer is <laughs> not going to remember that. He's just going to hear yeah. a really horrible sounding turkey come through here and maybe yeah. a boom or a bang later on. Yeah. But, no, I think if you're in there all the time, you know, during the off season, I'm not saying that, you know, if you shed hunted, you know, 30 straight days in a buck's bedding area, that maybe you wouldn't have some long-term effect on him, but mm-hmm. just making a few passes through, um, if they were that sensitive, uh, I don't know where they would live, you know, because yeah. there's almost no place in the real world where there's no human interaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They all live in Canada probably. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I kind of want to talk about looking at shed antlers from a health perspective. You know, if a deer has a pretty bad break, let's say it is, an, <clears throat> it's an indicator of that deer's health. So, have you ever had an instance where 
you've recovered sheds and you have found essentially a reoccurring theme of bad breaks indicating bad health. Has that kind of shifted your focus when it comes to planning and preparing food and nutrients for the fall at all? I think some of that is genetic, you know, like antler density. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know enough about that one to answer from that standpoint, but I will take it on a different tack. And that is the uh, health of the deer when he sheds. Yeah. Sometimes you'll find really early sheds. And that, that is something to be nervous about. Um, you know, if they're shedding in December, for example, in the Midwest, mm-hmm. you know, I've seen some deer do that just genetically they're wired to do that. That's just their timing. But a lot of times that's a sign of stress or in some cases an actual injury to that deer um, if they shed really early. Another thing to be a little bit worried about too is if you find an antler with a big chunk of bone on the base, yeah, uh, that, that damages the pedicle. And uh, I'm not the world's greatest at this either. But I do know that a certain percentage of those bucks with damaged pedicles don't grow a nice antler from that base ever again. Huh. Uh, so you always got to look at that kind of with a grain of salt too. It's yeah. like, dang it, you know, found the buck I was after, but there's like an inch and a half chunk of bone, you know, stuck on the on the base of this, and that can be a couple things. You know, I've seen it be brain abscesses, mm-hmm. you know, that soften the, the skull, and that killed the deer later. Um, but also sometimes, you know, who knows, maybe they were just sparring, you know, one buck ripped the other one, you know, his, his antler out. I don't know, but uh, it's usually not good um, mm-hmm. when you find an antler with a big chunk of bone on it. You mean? <clears throat> kind of like this guy right here. <laughs> yeah. He's so is that an example of that? I guess. I mean, I that's what I would say. I couldn't even begin to tell you what happened to this guy right here. I mean, he's got some freaky stuff. It it was actually, this is a low fence property that we have here in Texas, and it's uh, 14 scoreable points on this thing. I mean, he just, I think something yeah, happened like be, that. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if, if you had gone back a year and found the sheds off that buck with that right side. Somewhere in his you know recent past had a big chunk of bone attached to it that he took part of the pedicle off. You know, and it, it's... It's kind of crazy how resilient these animals are when it comes to stuff like that. Well, they're, the thing that, that really amazes me is um, the wounds that they can live through. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not even saying like human inflicted. You know, we had a buck, I don't remember the year, maybe 17, maybe, that showed up in the food plot in early November. And he had a uh, gash from, you know, basically just right underneath, you know, his chin all the way down to the point of his brisket. Wow. You know, where the little tuft of hair is. Mm-hmm. And it was laid open and it was all green for that whole stretch. Oof. And when he walked, he couldn't run. You know, he, he would walk and it's like the green stuff would just like fall off there. It's just nasty. And I thought, he was a nice 10 pointer, probably would have scored maybe 130, 135, you know. And I thought, man, you know, I really should just shoot that deer. But, uh, you know, if I shoot every one I see that's a little bit wounded, you know, I'm not going to have any tags left for, you know, nature runs its course. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't mean it's my job to be, you know, nature's executor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I let him go. And we saw him in, uh, and we found his antlers early, early drop, like we're talking about. Got trail camera pictures of him in 
January and his neck was about that big around. You know, it just had shriveled right down to nothing, just basically the bone and maybe a little bit of meat. But the skin had started to kind of, you know, whatever happened there, whether the skin pulled together, which I doubt, but he started healing. Well, then that next fall, there was an eight pointer in that buck's range. And I thought, gosh, he's got a familiar look to him, but I couldn't put two and two together. Yeah. And then the next year, he showed up again as a 10 pointer. And I got a lot of pictures of him, exactly almost identical to the way he looked the year that he got tore up. He had a great big scar running all the way zigzagging down his, his uh, front of his neck. And I, I had a camera, well, that eight-pointer was him. Anyway, coming back around, to, you know, we, we figured out that that, that eight-pointer was him. And I had a cameraman at that time. His name was Drake Lamb. And uh, Drake was just desperate for me to try to hunt him. And I said, you know, that'd be like seeing a cancer survivor stepping off the sidewalk and you speed up your car to run him over, you know I mean? He's, he's getting a pass. You know, we're not hunting that deer. You know, yeah. what he lived through. Well, then I sold the farm and the next year, the guy that bought it shot him. Uh-huh. I don't know how many, he must have been like six years old by then, weighed about 300 pounds, you know, Jeez. but uh, it was just amazing. That deer really brought home that, that whole thing of uh, what they can live through. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm sure that everybody's got similar stories to that of bucks that they've seen that pulled through some of the nastiest stuff, but. Um, he was every bit the man that he was supposed to be when the you know the guy finally killed him. I mean, he was he was the real deal. Yeah, but he was a couple of lean years in there. You know, when we come to sheds and we've talked about health and we've talked about the purpose behind what they're telling you as land manager, the bow hunter, rifle hunter, deer hunter, whatever you want to call yourself, but. Is there anything else that you're looking at for a shed to tell you after you found it? Not me personally. I think before the trail cameras, you know, I think that sheds were, they had more of a story to teach. Mm-hmm. Trail cameras have kind of trumped everything now. I mean, we can learn, we can be lazy in a lot of other stuff. Yeah you know, the scouting, shed hunting, all that stuff. And then the trail cameras bail us out, you know, because they teach us all the stuff that we would have had to learn, you know, the old fashioned way otherwise. Uh, So I might be the wrong guy to ask on that. Uh, I know there's biologists that probably have a better answer to it. You know, like if they look at the antler and it's got these characteristics, that means this, you know, Mm. I don't know. I don't know that stuff, I guess. That's a whole different world, man. That that's yeah. a that's a world that I opened up the can of worms on last year and dove into and had no idea. Like, you know, I, I was talking with Brian Murphy. Did you know, for instance, that deer antlers, uh, they're they're actually considered a form of cancer growth? Hmm. Yeah. I never knew that. And apparently they're somehow using it for research to see if it can somehow cure cancer in humans. Really? Yes. I had no i no earthly idea that that was even then, even the case. Pretty soon we won't even be able to find a buck with more than six points on him because everybody's going to be shooting him and grinding up their antlers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> isn't that the truth? We're going to start having oh god, antler yeah. dust on the black antler market. farm. Well, they kind of do have antler farms already. Yeah, you know, with what's the aphrodisiac? Is that elk, elk think, antler, or elk velvet, or something? I think it's so. A, yeah. So, I mean, I've never tried it myself, so yeah. don't, don't quote me, but <laughs> well, I think yeah. in China or someplace, they pay a bunch of money for, for, you know, antler velvet, 
you know, ground up antler or something like that. In no way, shape, or form are we encouraging y'all to eat or <laughs> do anything with that. No, I'm gonna have to put a disclaimer no, down here. There's no personal, no personal testimony. Just uh, something I heard. Yeah. So I know we're running out of time here, but kind of let's wrap it up for the listeners out there. You know, when it comes to to shed hunting, obviously it's fun. Like we talked about, great way to get family, friends, other people out in the outdoors and just looking for those sheds. Any final purposes for yourself when it comes to shed hunting, you know, the, the implications of it, you know, we've talked about inventory, we've talked about, you know, different things from verifying deer and helping you with scouting for the fall. Any last golden nuggets you want to share with the listeners? I just think it's a nice time of the year to be out. You know, people are looking for excuses after the winter. You know, we've all got cabin fever by April, you know, February, March, mm-hmm. uh, and you get that nice 50-degree day with the sun shining and those south-facing slopes have opened up. There's nothing better than just putting on your favorite boots and going for a walk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that's that's one reason. Another one I think truly is one of the things I said earlier. It's just a motivation to do what you should be doing anyway, and that's yeah. postseason scouting. Uh, you know, the antler is just that thing that, you know, gets you out of the, out of the office or out of the house or whatever to uh, – walk around and, and learn more about your hunting area. Absolutely. Well, Bill, tell the listeners where they can find you, your YouTube channel, social media, anybody wants to give you a follow and subscribe. Yeah. Well, the main thing is the uh, Bill Winky YouTube channel. And then uh, I've got, I think I've got Winky Bill or something like that on Instagram. I post to it once in a while, but so don't feel like I'm going to be there every day posting oh. something. I do. I do post on there some. Uh, I'll put the link down below there. for everybody. <laughs> no, don't put that one on there. They don't feel obligated to actually do something. Yeah, uh, I think I've got like sixteen or seventeen thousand like starved followers. Um, so that 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 one is, uh, and I do post once in a while. But yeah. the best place to keep up with me is on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And little by little, I've got a website, BillWinky.com. I don't really uh, keep it as fresh as I should. So, you know, if you go there, you can find some stuff, some information, but you're not going to find it being updated as often as I would like for it to be. And, and that's just something that I need to do a better job of. But uh, I, I still feel like there's a place for you know, individual websites for disseminating information. I'm just not doing a very good job with mine right now. Did we maybe help start the fire? Yeah. Yeah. Don't do that either. <laughs> don't make my life harder. <laughs> the media production is a lot of work. and. Um, the more people I have waiting for the next piece, the more obligated I feel to do more. So I'm kind of like in that middle ground where you're like, eh, I want to do just enough to, you know, stay out there and stay relevant, but not mm-hmm. so much that the expectation bar is too high. Yeah. You are not, <laughs> you are not lying, man. Not lying. Well, Bill, I really appreciate your time today and hopping on the podcast with me to talk deer and shed hunting, man. Yeah, my pleasure. No, it's, it's a, it's been a lot of fun and yeah, just whenever, you know, urge strikes you. I don't, I don't mind talking about deer. All right, y'all, there you go. Hopefully you were able to pick up something from Bill today and the implications of shed hunting, the purpose behind it, other than just having fun. Yes, we love to go out there. We love to find it, but there's a purpose behind it. And hopefully y'all are able to pick up some of these nuggets and apply it to your spring scouting strategy. And don't forget turkey hunt class. It's the first masterclass we're doing. Don't miss out. Head to the link down in the description below. Make sure you're signed up before we run out of room. So again, y'all, thanks for tuning in to the Hunt Stand Podcast, and we'll see you on the next one.